Hello, I'm Dr. Brian McDonough, and welcome to Primary Care Today. With our guest this time is Dr. Carl Dagramji. Dr. Dagramji is a person I have known for many years, mostly because he is a pioneer in the field of sleep and sleep studies. He is at Thomas Jefferson University Hospital, Jefferson Medical School in Philadelphia, and it's really a pleasure to have you with us, Carl, because as a primary care doctor myself and with an audience, that is made up largely of primary care physicians, this is an issue which is one that is only getting larger. The ideas of sleep apnea and sleep problems, many of our patients suffer with this. And I wanted to ask you, first of all, just as a general question, how did you get into this area? Why did you become interested so many years ago? Well, Brian, you know, uh, I was, as you know, uh, specializing uh, in uh in psychiatry, and I was very interested in not only the biological, but psychological and all aspects of an individual's care. And I, I really was considering primary care because clearly we see people from a multidimensional standpoint there, but I also wanted a bit of the specialist sort of um, framework. And sleep medicine was just a great way to, to do that because it's a combination, really, when you think about it, of neurology, psychiatry, pulmonary medicine, and a number of other things and in many ways, sleep really transcends the bounds of our, of our traditional disciplines, and that, to me, was a very exciting thing. So you get involved, and you start to notice, I'm sure, that people who have difficulty sleeping are having problems. And I remember years ago interviewing you for television, talking about sleep hygiene, and, and you, you expressed it so well. So I want to start there. Tell me a little bit about some of the mistakes that people can make, our patients, when they are sleeping, and that maybe even we as physicians don't tell them. So when they come in and say, I'm having difficulty going to sleep at night, we might be able to help them out a bit. That's a very good place to start, Brian, because most of us, as you know, violate sleep hygiene, and, and in those of us who are vulnerable, uh, insomnia is the consequence. And one of the biggest principles is to maintain a regular bedtime, uh, a regular time to bed, regular time out of bed, which is very difficult in our busy lifestyles now because many of us are holding two jobs and working shifts and so on and so forth and, and overdoing things on weekends. So regularity, and the most important of those, is waking up at the same time every morning. Secondly, with all the caffeine we consume in this society, it's very important to maintain a caffeine-free uh, environment in one's, uh, in one's body within about 10 hours of bedtime. So no caffeine within 10 hours. And making the bedroom and the bedtime environment as quiet and as relaxing and as dark as possible. So for about an hour before bedtime, making sure that the room is dark uh, so that the, bi the biology of our bodies begin to transition from wakefulness to sleep. And the corollary is also true, making sure that the morning is as well-lit or there's as much light as possible. And, and finally, <laughs> um, uh, not, not consuming alcohol too close to bedtime because that can also uh, make things fairly difficult from a sleep continuity standpoint. And a number of other, other principles, but I think these are the major ones that we tend to violate. So when people do that and they come in to see you and you talk about that, um, obviously that helps them quite a bit. But when you get beyond that, you know, they've tried those things, they've taken those steps, and they begin thinking they might need some medications to help them sleep, what direction do you turn now? I mean, is it the traditional sleeping pills? What, how do you help them at home if they can't sleep? Well, you know, one of, one of my first approaches is to do a good diagnostic workup because, you know, as well as I do, that insomnia can be the product of so many different factors. So to try to tease those out to decide what's really the primary cause and to really narrow, uh, to zero in, I should say, after that specific cause. So a good example might be a subtle depression that the patient's not aware of. 
in that case, maybe the patient's lost some weight or maybe a little anhedonic, but not, not aware of the depressive component, and, and treating them with a hypnotic or, so, or, or something else might, might not do the job well. And in that case, treating the depression would be a much better idea. But let's say that this is sort of a primary insomnia and there are no other major factors causing it, then I think at that point, you know, there are a couple of options we can take, and both of these are valid options. One is, of course, cognitive behavioral therapy, which many of us don't have available in our offices, but there are trained therapists who will do this, relaxation techniques, biofeedback, guided imagery, and so on. And interestingly, there are a number of websites and uh, website services now that offer this sort of technique online, and the data showed the online techniques work just as well as the in-person cognitive therapies. And, of course, the second approach is pharmacology and direct pharmacology for the insomnia. And, and the good news today, unlike the day, the day maybe 10 years ago or 15 or 20 years ago when I first spoke with you, is that we have such a wide variety of agents available to us now, and we can kind of select the agent that's best suited for that person's insomnia. So if, if it's an um, initiation insomnia or difficulty falling asleep, we might want to choose something very short-acting, whereas if it's a maintenance insomnia or a difficulty in waking up early or just waking up throughout the night, a longer-acting agent might be more appropriate. And, of course, as you know, there are a number of agents now available that are non-habituating in nature and are not even scheduled. So it's a much better day, if you will, for insomnia pharmacology now than it was many years ago. You know, you mentioned so many years ago, and that is true. A lot of the time on this program, I try to let the listeners know a little bit about me. And my background is, obviously, I'm still in practice and chairman of a family medicine department, but I also do radio and television. And way back, one of my first guests, and I remember and appreciate him taking the time, was Dr. Doug Ramsey early in his career as well. Probably in the late 80s, we talked and did radio yeah. programs. And, and it's funny when you talk about those changes, you know, having lived it, and those of us who have been practicing for a while know that, that the changes and the developments have been amazing. And one of the things that clearly has come through the last 10, 15 years and was in the early stages when we first talked was the idea of sleep studies, the idea of um, knowing that sleep apnea was an issue. And as we do more and more studies, we're finding out that these people who are snoring and have sleep apnea have also long-term health issues, problems with high blood pressure leading to heart disease, all sorts of things. Tell me a little bit, before we talk about specifics of sleep apnea, why it's so important to address it and deal with it. Yeah, absolutely. Well, you know, the, 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 we're beginning to find that it's much more common than we initially had thought. I mean, the data now indicate that, that a minimum of 2 to 4% of the population suffers from this. And, you know, when, when you and I were speaking many years ago, we didn't even, we, we thought that this, this was much lower percentage than even that. But we also now know that sleep apnea can be so consequential. As you mentioned, one of the, some of the consequences include long-term hypertension uh, uh, as well as um, other cardiovascular conditions such as atrial fibrillation, uh, developing a, a cerebrovascular accident, stroke, and the coronary artery disease are all very much linked to underlying sleep apnea because of its association with endothelial dysfunction and uh, inflammatory changes. In addition, sleep apnea is a very major cause of daytime sedation and sleepiness, which is a huge problem in our society. You know, people falling asleep at the wheel, causing so many accidents, that people not being able to function properly on the job. So clearly this is a condition which is very common. And I think the other reason why we need to be really on the lookout for this is that it's so commonly not addressed by the patient directly. So people do not come in saying, you know, I have sleep apnea, I stop breathing in my sleep, or something along those lines. They, they just basically, in fact, most of them don't even come in. 
they're simply lethargic, sleepy, and maybe they snore and ignore it. But here, this is a condition which is fomenting or aggravating all these other underlying conditions which we may not even be able to treat properly. For example, a patient with a refractory hypertension may, may have that condition because of the fact that there's an underlying sleep apnea condition that's not being properly addressed. I'm Dr. Brian McDonough. My guest is Dr. Carl Dagramji, a sleep study and a sleep expert from Thomas Jefferson University in Philadelphia. You're listening to ReachMD, the network for medical professionals. The show is called Primary Care Today. We're here on a regular basis here to talk about medical issues for the primary care physician. And clearly, if you're talking about sleep apnea, we want to talk a little about some of the treatments, including CPAP. Tell me a little bit about CPAP and you know how realistic it is for patients. Do you have success with it? And, and when do you get to that point? In, in asking your patient to get a sleep study. Right. So, so, I mean, CPAP has really revolutionized the treatment of sleep apnea. When I started in the field, uh, we used to really subject most of our patients to tracheotomy, which we hardly ever do now. Uh, CPAP is really a way of introducing air, room air into a person's pharynx, overcoming the obstruction of the apnea. And fortunately, it works very well, and fortunately, data show that It reverses many of the physiologic changes that apnea introduces, such as hypertension. It even reduces mortality. We now have long-term studies, which are not randomized studies, but they're very good studies, showing that it reduces the mortality from uh, from, uh, almost 50% or so over the course of 20 years down to close to 1% or 2%, which is the norm for that particular study. So uh, it works. The, the problems with CPAP, of course, uh, one of the major problems is that it has to be worn every night by patients, and noncompliance is a big issue. Uh, uh, we have ways of dealing with noncompliance in accredited centers such as ours. We have therapists and the physicians who deal with patients on a regular basis and follow up to ensure that they're complying. But we have to admit that for a lot of people, CPAP is not the way to go because of things like claustrophobia and so on. And the, and, and the news is good, Brian. The current uh, state of the art is that we have dental appliances uh, that work very well for mild to moderate apnea. We also have a number of positioning devices which work well for individuals that have positional-related apnea. We have also seen a great advance in some of the small devices that open up the nostril. Uh, there's something called an expiratory positive valve device which basically patients wear at night, wear it, which creates a, in, an expiratory positive pressure inside the nostril during exhalation, uh, producing expansion of the upper airway and, and helping apnea patients. And finally, surgery has made big inroads. Uh, minor surgeries of the upper airway uh, are, are more and more successful these days. But we have a lot available to us for the treatment of apnea. And I think the physician who sees a patient non-compliant with CPAP and who who simply does not want to use CPAP should really not stop there. Uh, That doc should say, look, there are other methods. Let's refer you back for an exploration of other possibilities because it is such a debilitating and consequential condition if left untreated. Uh, I think you had also talked about what are some of the uh, symptoms of apnea, how do we identify it. You know, not all patients who snore have have apnea, obviously. Uh, the, The person who snores is at risk of apnea, but there are a number of inventories that have now been developed which indicate to us who is at a high risk for apnea. There's something called the STOP or STOP inventory, which basically looks at uh, eight elements in the history, snoring, daytime sleepiness, uh, the observation that the patient has been stopping breathing by relatives or vet partners, number four, history of hypertension, number five, a body mass index of greater than 35, 
Number six, age greater than 50. Number seven, a neck circumference of greater than approximately 16 inches. And number eight, male gender. And if any three of these are more positive, that person has a very high risk of apnea and should probably be suspected and referred diagnostic testing. So really a lot of the patients I know for me that I see coming into my office fit at least three of those categories even before I ask about snoring and asking what their partners are right. saying. So, so, and I will tell you, I mean, I try to be full disclosure on this show too. I don't, you don't always think about it. You know, somebody comes in and you're, you're they come in for a sinus infection or they come in with back pain or they come in with hypertension or GI issues. You're not necessarily pointing to sleep studies or concerned about it, even when they have hypertension. So I think what you're bringing up is good for all of us to hear because again, as you said earlier, it's not first in our minds. Exactly. Exactly. As you know, Brian, it's a matter of risk. I mean, if somebody satisfies three or so of these criteria and is at a high risk, um, but really has no underlying comorbidities and does not have any impairment in terms of functioning, we might want to exercise some, some, uh, some conservative measures, losing weight or, or health measures and so on, which is what we do in primary care all the time. But if somebody has three or four of these risks and, in addition, has major medical comorbidities like atrial fibrillation, uh, congestive heart failure, or some sort of a metabolic condition like diabetes, I think that kind of person we might want to expedite uh, to, to for, for sleep studies or for, uh, for more specialized evaluations uh, because of the fact that apnea can have such a negative consequence in terms of these comorbidities. We only have about 25 seconds or so with Dr. Doug Ramji. Any final point you want to make before we wrap it up? Well, I think, you know, uh, in this day and age, we, we also have seen a lot of people on, uh, doing the home sleep studies. I just want to say that this is an emerging field in sleep medicine. We have uh, a, a great potential in this area. They're only really accredited or approved for sleep apnea and no other conditions. And my recommendation is if family physicians and primary care physicians engage in doing them, that they really make sure that the laboratory that, that they partner with is accredited and that they screen their patients well. But this is a great age for sleep medicine, and I'm very happy to be on the show with you. Dr. Carl DeGromji, I want to thank you for joining us on Primary Care today. Until next time, this is Dr. Brian McDonough, and we'll talk again.